most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, June 6th, 2022, the 502nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Well, let's get the week started mentioning, as always, the great American patriot Mike Lindell and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. You can go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code REASONABLE, and get up to 60% off items all across the MyPillow store. Mike Lindell also has a bunch of buy one, get one free offers up now, and you get a free gift when you order Mike Lindell's book. So you'll be supporting this show. You'll be supporting the great American patriot, Mike Lindell, and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. MyPillow.com, promo code REASONABLE. Also, I am going to begin posting the podcast next week exclusively on Substack for paid subscribers. Starting Monday, which means I will not be posting it on Rumble and Frank Speech and the normal podcast app and all that. It's going to come up later on all those places the next day, maybe two days. And this isn't something that I'm joyful about doing. It's something I need to do so that I can survive just in life. And so the show can survive while I do that. And I know these are hard financial times for people including myself. So if that's something you cannot afford to do, you are welcome to reach out to me and I will do whatever I can to help you out, whether it's for a few months or whatever. But I put an awful lot of work into this show and I think that it will continue to grow. And I hope that it's serving an important purpose. I want to be able to keep it going to find out because we are in the middle of interesting times. And I assume that maybe this will upset some people, but it's what I have to do. So I hope that you will continue to support the show. And finally, I am going to be in a friend's wedding on Friday. So there will be no episode on Friday unless I am able to pull off an interview during this week, which I would then post on Friday. So going to try to do that. No promises, but let's get into it. And I want to start just briefly with an absolutely hysterical post by Jack Posobiec. And the post wasn't a joke. He's very serious. He has often reported from White House insiders. And, you know, you take his reports for what they are. He reports consistently on the internal White House drama. He calls it the shade war. And he gives shade war updates because the Biden side and the Kamala side don't seem to get along very well. And of course, the Biden side is also the Obama side that has to deal with the Hillary side as well. So it's kind of a three directional rhinos versus MAGA, except on the Democrat Communist Party side, all of their factions are criminally corrupt communists. And because of that, they will eventually all try to destroy one another. When you achieve power through corrupt favor trading, through compromise, and then you commit crimes to cover all that up, you commit crimes so that you can do the thing that keeps you getting elected and keeps you getting paid, you are surrounded by exclusively 
corrupt and compromised criminals. And in any environment like that, you soon realize you can't trust any of those people. And of course, anyone who is going to sell out their integrity to sell their soul for wealth and power and make themselves willing and complicit in the corruption and the compromise and the criminality. Well, those people have already pretty clearly shown themselves as people who are first and foremost concerned about their own power and wealth and status, which means they will sacrifice anyone else at all times to remain in power to keep their wealth, to keep their status. And that sort of system seems to be working when those people in power are preying on the weak and the vulnerable and people without wealth and status and power. And as they keep preying on the levels beneath them, those levels grow larger. Because the effects begin to trickle up to the people who were formerly more and more like those powerful people at the top. And eventually the system that people were supporting starts to attack them as well. And they get dropped in wealth and power and status, thus making that group of underlings larger and larger and larger in comparison to the smaller and smaller group of people still wielding corrupt, compromised criminal power. But there's not some point where the powerful people with wealth and status just decide they no longer want to pursue power and wealth and status. It's kind of built into the program at that point. And once they've stripped all the wealth and power and status from the people on the bottom, they have to find more people to strip wealth and power and status from. So they keep on going up the chain and it doesn't stop, which means eventually the people at the top and the people closest to the top will be fighting the same power battles among one another that they were formerly just simply fighting against the people. And this should teach us something important about how ultimately bad a strategy it is to achieve wealth and status and power through corruption and compromise and criminality. Because we can think about the global organizations, the global centers of control, whether it's the World Economic Forum or the WHO or the Chinese Communist Party or the global American evil twin as currently represented by Joe Biden. And we can recognize that we are not in that club. We are not in that club individually, and we are not in that club collectively. First off, we would never want to be in that club. We are choosing to remain out of it. All you have to do to be in that club is comply and do whatever they say. If you want the bottom level benefit, they'll give you the bottom level benefit because they value your compliance and your support. It has some value for them. Because on that bottom level, you are still making life harder. You are making non-compliance harder for people who aren't already on their side. And people will continue doing this, thinking that they are part of that club and they will ultimately remain part of that club. And for at least people like them, they will still have the chance to succeed and a chance to make their lives better and pass a better life on to their children. That's the underlying theory. That's what's operating when they decide to comply with everything. If we just go along, everything will be fine for us, right? So as much as they talk about a collective, everything to them is the collective. It is a collectivist ideology. That's why they focus on religion and race and gender and whatever else they can use to divide people. But for all they focus on that collective, their club consists of absolutely only one person, and it's them. For each one of them individually, the driving force in their life is the accumulation of wealth and power and status. And they can preach for their entire lives that it is for the good of everyone. It's for the good of the collective. And it turns out that, yes, the vulnerable are always hurt by their plans, but those are speed bumps on the road to progress. But as you go up and up and up, it 
turns out that the club is absolutely one person and all of them would gladly destroy their husbands and wives and children and parents and communities in order to keep accumulating wealth and status and power. And you don't need to look any further for proof of that than Hunter Biden's laptop. All right. That is what these people will do to their own children. Look at Paul Pelosi. Look at Kerry's stepson, Chris Hines. These people are all involved in corrupt organizations. They are committing crimes. And despite the fact that they are still walking the world as free people, we do know what they have done and they can still be held accountable. But it is no accident that they are in the positions they're in because their parents are corrupt and compromised criminals. And that's the family business. It is run like a mafia. But let's get back to Posobiec's post. So I've talked a bunch of times on this podcast about what I thought would happen, how Biden would eventually be removed from office and who it seemed like the global communists were setting up to take his place once that happens. At various times over the last 18 months, they have pushed Kamala forward. They've pushed Hillary forward. They're trying to show the world that they have this stable of highly competent, very woke, perfect candidates that everybody loves. The media loves. Jimmy Kimmel loves them. Stephen Colbert loves them. All the celebrities post about how great they are. Oh, look at these politicians who are saving us. What wonderful people. So convincing. The entire country is convinced. But nonetheless, Joe Biden has remained as fake president for much longer than I thought, actually. I mean, the country has got to wake up. The country has got to look at the laptop. I cannot wait until Garrett Ziegler and Mar Marco Polo release the Hunter Biden laptop report. Hopefully that will be the final nail in the coffin on that entire incident and everything connected to it. But the truth is that for a responsible and informed society, we would already be there. We would already be trying to punish these crimes. Now, again, I completely understand the corruption of the institutions and how deep and wide the swamp is. I get it. I'm only illustrating the difference between where we are and where we should be. But the point is, Joe Biden has absolutely no business even pretending to be president. He is that bad. He is quite possibly the most corrupt politician in American history. It is five decades of nothing but corruption and compromise. His entire family is compromised. Imagine you, right? Just you, your family, your friends, the people around you, the people closest to you, your children, your parents, whatever. Imagine if your lust for wealth and status and power was so great and so unyielding that everything you focused your life around made their lives more compromised to the point where you include them in your compromise. Are you a good person? Should the general public be supporting your leadership of them, your decision-making power over other people? The answer quite obviously is of course not, but nonetheless it happens despite the people's knowledge of it. And what does that say about the legitimacy of their power? So anyway, Jack Posobiec posts shade war update Biden privately telling advisors if he doesn't run, he wants Kamala to be the nominee. But if Hillary also runs, he will refrain from endorsing until after the primary per White House staffer. Now, that is preposterous on its face. You're like, OK, that makes sense. He's going to say he wants Kamala to be the nominee because he's got to support his own vice president. But then if Hillary jumps in, there's a whole lot of Democratic power structure. Let them fight it out. Let the people choose, blah, blah, blah. I'll just sit it out like Barack did when blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, OK, fine. That makes sense. That sounds like something that works. That sounds like that would happen, right? 
But let's see what they're actually admitting in here, right? First off, we're going to take it for granted that the statement is true, that Jack Posobiec has the person he says he has informing him about this stuff from within the White House, all right? Obviously, if that's not true, then everything else doesn't make sense. That's taken as a given. But I know people are like, well, that's just Posobiec reporting that. You can't just assume that's true. Yeah, you can't assume anything's true. But I find Posobiec to be a pretty responsible reporter. And this tracks with what we know about the White House. And we know about the political machinations on that side of things and the various factions on that side. So first off, the first part, if Joe Biden decides not to run again, if there is any conversation about that, then the truth is obviously that Joe Biden is not going to run again. And even the conversation about Joe Biden running is stupid. I understand. But they are trying to have it both ways. They want to say there are these other options out there in case those ones seem more realistic to you. And remember, they are presenting a false reality here. They are trying to coherently present a false reality well enough that people will believe it. All right. It doesn't have to convince everybody. It doesn't have to make sense. Doesn't have to be true. Doesn't have to be principled. They don't care about any of those things. All they care about is that their people will continue to spread their message, which leaves all the people in the middle of the country who haven't totally begun to think for themselves in this vague and stressful and upsetting position about not knowing what's real. How can the TV be saying something, but the reality be completely the opposite? They can keep those people addicted to the central narrative while they remain in that mindset. And the way they do that is by presenting all of this absurdity to the most addicted, the loudest and the most influential, which is why their army of useful idiots, you know, celebrities, actors, musicians, athletes, experts, professors, they need to have this view taken seriously by enough people so that it puts doubt in everyone else's minds about what's actually true. And so they're taking feedback constantly from their audience about what their audience will continue to support. Will they continue to support Biden? Will they support Kamala? Will they support Hillary? Let's just throw them all out there in a very vague way and find out. And then maybe we'll push a little harder in that direction if the people tell us, ooh, we are ready for her again. But people are realizing that Joe Biden is mentally and physically unfit for office. Despite anything else, he is clearly unable to do the job of president. He is not effective at doing the job of president. And I'm talking about a normie viewpoint, right? That thinks Joe Biden is the one with his hand on all the switches. But everybody is realizing at this point that Joe Biden cannot do the job of president. So it's very easy to deal with the idea that Joe Biden might not run again, even for a Biden voter, because they will say they'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say, yeah, you know, he is definitely an older man and he might be losing his capacities a little bit. But it was still really important that we got him elected to get rid of Trump and to start implementing these progressive policies that are pushing the country forward. That is the argument they'll make. That is what they'll say. And so. They can recognize that, but they don't want Joe Biden to be a lame duck president. So Joe Biden can't come out and say, I'm not going to run. I'm going to pass the torch to someone. There is no person to pass that torch to that the country will accept either. That's the dilemma they find themselves in. But they are admitting Joe Biden cannot possibly run in 2024. He couldn't make it out of his basement in 2020. But imagine saying to the American public that Joe Biden is not going to run again. What does that look like right now in the world? Joe Biden has a massive illegal immigrant problem. The economy's falling apart. Inflation's out of control. Gas prices are out of control. Parts of the U.S., we're told, are going to be unable to meet their energy needs. 
And then we have foreign conflicts around the world, not least of which is Russia and Ukraine and then China, Taiwan. It is widely recognized that Joe Biden is incapable of handling any of these situations well, but it would be even more obvious and it would actually even further weaken America's position ostensibly for Joe Biden to be seen as a lame duck president. And I say ostensibly because there is no way in the world that Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and the rest of the world leaders actually think Joe Biden is really a legitimate American president in the first place. There is no way world leaders believe that Joe Biden is the legitimate American president. There's just no way. They are not morons. So step one in this statement. First, they have made Biden, for all intents and purposes, now publicly a lame duck president. An admission that they are thinking about someone else running is an admission not only of Biden's failure, but of Biden's inability to successfully run in 2024. And that is with a system of election fraud. He is so bad that even if they ran the same system in the same way again, even fewer people would believe it. That narrative is dead in the water with no hope of revival. So if Joe doesn't run, then he wants Kamala to be the nominee. And so, of course, he has to, you know, throw his power behind Kamala Harris. She's his vice president. After all, if he was to go out and say at 79 years old and ready to keel over at any point that his vice president isn't the best person for the job, that is a clear admission of another Biden failure in choosing her. Not that he chose her, but it's important to operate with the reality and the narrative. And so because Biden can't come out and say that Kamala is like him, totally unfit for the White House, he has to waffle. I'll support Kamala for the presidency in 2024 if I don't run, but I'm probably going to run. But if I don't run, I would support Kamala. (laughs) Unless, unless Hillary wanted to run too. So statement one, he waffles, right? He'll probably run, but also he might not waffles. It exposes what the truth is. The truth actually isn't in that waffling middle between two opposing possibilities. The truth is one of those possibilities and they're waffling for narrative effect. So waffle position number one, he's going to run, but also there's a chance that he's not going to run. Well, which one is it? Well, it's he's not going to run, obviously. Waffle position number two, I'll support Kamala unless Hillary runs. Well, that's the waffle position, the unless. If you support her unless this other thing happens, then the truth about waffle position number two becomes pretty clear as well. Joe Biden cannot support Kamala against Hillary. He has just told the world that. Now, Kamala Harris has never been popular on the national level at all, and she's become less popular as time has gone on. The country wants nothing to do with Kamala Harris. And given the possibility that Kamala Harris could be running in 2024 if Joe doesn't run, Joe would still keep an open mind about Hillary Clinton. He is undermining the vice president, even with the waffle position. And then what's the last statement? If Hillary also runs, he will refrain from endorsing until after the primary. So he's really not endorsing at all. Endorsing the Democrat candidate after the Democrat candidate is already the candidate means that you are taking yourself out of the process altogether, which is the least presidential thing anyone could ever imagine. It only speaks to how weak Joe Biden's endorsement is. Can you even imagine Democrat primary candidates wanting Joe Biden's endorsement? And why would anyone When he and his staff and 
whatever little communist cabal is running him. This is their level of communications. This is what they're thinking about. This is a three part statement. Every single part is vague and intentionally designed to create doubt and uncertainty. It gives their audience, the child brains in our country, a way to support both of two opposing ideas and think that no matter which one happens, our side has got it covered. I mean, this entire concept is completely unhinged, but in the false reality, it makes complete and total sense. Joe Biden can't run, but he can't say he won't run. So he's going to say that he'll probably run, but might not. Well, that leaves everything open. He'll support Kamala unless Hillary runs. Well, that's open. And if Hillary runs, then he won't support anyone. No decision is made. Every possibility is covered. Therefore, no conclusion can be reached. And whatever happens is what we'll all support. That is what the child brain's mind does when this situation is presented to them inside the false reality. So speaking of Hill Dog, she tweeted this morning, this weekend in mass shootings, three people were killed and at least 14 injured in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Three people were killed and at least 11 injured in Philadelphia. We won't accept this state of affairs as a normal Saturday in America. And because of statements like this and the various gun-related incidents we've seen over the last few weeks, you are supposed to change into orange clothes, post a picture of the White House lit up in orange, and walk around telling other Americans that we must disarm the entire country or else the global communists will keep screaming about gun control. And it's worth saying that, at best, any Republican getting on board with any, any part of this gun control nonsense is, again, at best, doing what all the Biden voters justified and rationalized to themselves, which is making their decision based on what will make the communists stop yelling. But again, there's no reason to give them the benefit of the doubt. It should be pretty clear that when people like Lindsey Graham are coming out and saying we look forward to voting on Biden's gun measures, Lindsey Graham is completely corrupt, completely compromised and totally complicit with the advancement of the global communist agenda in America. But let's talk about the reality of this huge gun problem narrative that we are being constantly told about by our betters. This is from Becker News today. The huge problem with all those reports about weekend mass shootings. Phoenix, Somerton, Chattanooga, Philadelphia. You may have seen these cities names sprayed across the morning headlines as sites of weekend mass shootings as the media makes an all out effort to push the Biden administration's gun control agenda. The activist media are pushing these incidents as a, quote, string of shootings left at least 15 people dead and more than 60 others wounded in eight states this weekend, as NPR put it. The public funded news source notes only the mass shootings last month in Buffalo, New York, which was carried out by an apparently racist 18 year old suspect who described himself as a mild, moderate authoritarian leftist and the deadly school mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. And isn't that a clever construction right there? A mild, moderate, authoritarian leftist. That is how all of them imagine themselves. They think the facts as they exist in the false reality are real and that their position is actually not extreme left. They are not devout communists. They're actually very moderate. They just understand that the communists have a point about this or that thing. And they all really do want to make everybody's lives better. So they're very moderate. It's just like the, the fake centrists. There are no centrists. There is no centrism. There is some idea of centrism between right and left, but we don't exist. Politics don't exist. Society does not exist on whatever the right left paradigm is anymore. 
That is not a realistic picture of society, of what's happening in the world and where the divide exists. It's not between right and left. It's not between Republican and Democrat. All those people that think that they are somewhere in the center of those paradigms, they're not there. They have no idea where they are. They cannot describe anything about the right-left spectrum or the Democrat-Republican spectrum. They just understand D and R, right and left. They understand what the good side is saying and what everybody else is saying. And when everybody else is saying the same things that the good side is saying, oh, well, that is something that's definitely true. I'm going to hold to that position and that'll be centrist. That'll be moderate. No. When Democrats and Republicans are agreeing, it's because they both agree with the global communist agenda. That is the point at which they agree. When right and left are agreeing, they are enforcing the global communist agenda. That is the point at which they agree. And to make them feel even more like those positions are valid, they will back it up with the science or claims from the experts. But back to the article. The media's implication is clear. There is a bright red line that can be drawn between last month's mass shootings and the gun violence that broke out this weekend, as it does on many weekends in large U.S. cities. But there are a number of problematic facts about the weekend shootings. There are few publicly identified suspects, and thus it is difficult to rule out if the shootings were gang related or domestic violence related. In addition, not all of the events fall into mass shootings under the most technical stipulations, since the most stringent databases that follow historical standards qualify that there must be three or more or four or more people killed. That's according to Mother Jones and the Violence Project, respectively. As the media's mission creep has expanded in concert with the Democratic Party's gun control agenda, so has the definitional inflation. Al Jazeera Labs has put together a useful chart to keep these definitions straight. The number of reported mass shootings in the U.S. can thus vary dramatically. In 2021, for example, there were either six mass shootings or 818 mass shootings, depending on the definition. And there are a few variations that the chart that they made encompasses. So they have the three or four or more killed. Those are two options, right? Three or more killed, four or more killed. They divide along that line. Then there are cases where four or more people are killed or injured. And then there are cases where four or more are killed or injured, including the shooter. There are also definitional variations about whether or not the incident was in a public place or if it could have just been anywhere. And then there are also variations in whether or not the killing was indiscriminate or whether people were targeted, which means that you can include all sorts of gun related incidents under the definition of mass shootings. But that's not what we are being sold on television. And those aren't the mass shootings we're being directed to look at when they want to come around and grab people's guns. For that matter, they're also not the killings we're directed to look at when they're trying to sell a narrative about racism or white supremacy or domestic terrorism. But let's pick this back up. A brief review of the known facts about the mass shootings reported for this weekend demonstrates this definitional divergence. In data analysis, determining if a case qualifies as an event is known as coding. In Phoenix, there was one known fatality, but nine people were taken to the hospital with gunshot wounds. It would thus not qualify under the strict definitions. In Somerton, South Carolina, eight people were shot and one was killed at a Saturday night graduation party. The police characterized the assault as a drive-by shooting that was likely a gang-related incident. It would also fail to qualify for multiple reasons. In Chattanooga, there were three killed and 14 injured in gunfire at a nightclub in an attack carried out by multiple shooters. The shooting incident seems to bear the hallmarks of gang-related violence. Therefore, it may not fit the bill as indiscriminate. And I think there... That language was kind of ambiguous, but he means this does not qualify as a mass shooting because the killing was indiscriminate. 
The bottom line is that every one of these weekend attacks would technically fail to meet the requirements as a mass shooting under the strict definitions. Nonetheless, public news sources like NPR continue to hype statistics such as the U.S. has, quote, seen at least 246 mass shootings, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Definition above as four or more killed or injured that could be anywhere for any reason without providing context. The U.S. media has historically ignored gang-related violence and domestic violence incidents for the simple reason that they don't appear to support the case for gun control. In a nation of 393 million guns and 150 million law-abiding citizens with access to firearms, it is difficult to persuade people that such violence is the fault of gun owners, and therefore people should be deprived of the means to defend themselves from well-armed criminals. Thus, the gun control push has tended to be driven by high-profile, indiscriminate shooting events at public places. Lost amid the top headlines of Buffalo and Uvalde were other mass shootings with inconvenient narratives for those pushing gun control. There was the New York City subway shooting suspect, Frank Robert James, who opened fire on unsuspecting passengers while at a Brooklyn station. He is an African-American male who had been on the FBI's terror watch list till 2019. There was the Laguna Woods church shooting, which was carried out by a Chinese man loyal to the Chinese Communist Party who was angry about Taiwanese separatists. There was a mass murder carried out by escaped fugitive Gonzalo Lopez, a convicted murderer who killed a family of five and stole their white pickup truck from a weekend getaway cabin before he was hunted down and fatally shot by police. There was the Tulsa hospital shooting carried out by an African-American male against a physician, which killed another doctor, a receptionist and a patient. This is not exactly the scourge of violence driven by white supremacy that the media has constantly warned Americans about. Indeed, crime statistics estimate that nearly three quarters of mass shootings are carried out by African-American males. It appears that only one of the recent high profile mass shootings was carried out by a white male. And that was a self-described authoritarian leftist, as noted above. Another statistical anomaly about the recent mass shootings is that a number of them were committed with AR platform rifles. The Buffalo mass shooting, the Uvalde shootings, the Texas fugitive shooting, and the Tulsa hospital shooting being among the most prominent. Every town for gun safety, a gun control advocacy group, reports only 16% of mass shootings were carried out with AR-style rifles from 2009 to 2022. It is an odd coincidence to emerge amid an outbreak of mass shootings and misleadingly categorized shootings that culminated in President Biden announcing an initiative to bring back the quote-unquote assault weapons ban, particularly since the Effects of that ban are dubious, and the FBI reports that only a minority of gun homicides are committed with any type of rifle. Indeed, far fewer than knife homicides or even hands and feet. The assault weapons ban was passed in 1994 and expired in 2004. It did not appear to have a major impact on mass shooting incidents. This is not to argue that the status quo is acceptable. There is an uptick in verifiable mass shooting since 2012. The Uvalde, Texas elementary school shooting that killed 19 children and two teachers is the most infamous. While the authoritarian left is fixated on the 18-year-old suspect's ability to obtain firearms, there are a number of serious questions about the school's security and the police's feckless response. The mass shooting incidents that appear to shock the public conscience are the ones where the victims are known to be disarmed, such as in gun-free zones like schools. If you use the criteria that are used by gun violence experts, there have been 13 deadly mass shootings in the United States since 1966. That doesn't make the events any less tragic, but it does suggest that the solution does not lie in depriving law-abiding gun owners of personal defense firearms and rather in identifying mental illness and young persons prone to mass violence. Yet there is one solution that appears to be a non-starter with gun control advocates, arming teachers or school resource officers. As gun violence expert John Lott Jr. has pointed out in 2019 research, there has yet to be a single case of someone being wounded or killed from a shooting, let alone a mass public shooting, between 6 a.m. and midnight at a school that lets teachers carry guns. 
The mainstream media thus appears to be advocating a non-solution with its push to deprive law-abiding gun owners of their Second Amendment right to bear arms. Instead of making more American citizens defenseless against armed attackers, the solution may be to send the message to would-be mass murderers that anyone who intends to carry out a shooting rampage against innocent children can expect to immediately be met with deadly force. So Hill Dog's tweet is not looking very accurate. And because she is intelligent enough and informed enough and has enough access to information to be able to know the statistics that Kyle Becker just went through in that article, to know what the definition of mass shooting is, it is easy to conclude that she doesn't actually care about highlighting an issue and proposing a solution. What she cares about is pushing a political agenda by exploiting this issue and these incidents. If you actually care about an incident and you want people to get on your side, you have to start by telling them the truth. That may not be the fastest way to convince them, but it is the most permanent and the most enduring and the most apt to promote change, which is why the Great Awakening is so feared by these people. If the American public awakens to the fact that they have been lied to about virtually everything by the same people and for the same reasons for decade after decade, that is going to lay the ground for an enduring change in this country and a return to genuine Americanism. But that's not what people like Hillary Clinton are after ever. They want power. They want wealth. They want status. They want to implement their agenda because the implementation of that agenda brings them all wealth and power and status collectively. And as I said before, since that collective accumulation of wealth and power and status is never enough. They will continue to push on on their own, guided by their own priorities to enhance their own personal position. So we can talk about how this narrative that they are propagating is intended to push their gun grab forward, their disarming of American citizens. And certainly as part of their 2030 agenda, they need the American citizenry disarmed. They have, they believe, eight years to do this. And of course, they need the public to go along with it. But why now? Why right now? It's entirely possible that they are in a phase of the color revolution, hence the promotion of wearing orange and identifying this issue with a color. The communists and the rioters like to have visual cues about who's on their side. This is why they're probably pushing for mask mandates in airplanes again. But that's not the whole thing. They surely want to control the narrative and make themselves look like they're on the right side of the issue. They want an issue that divides the whole country that people will choose a side on. They want to be able to steal an election and then tell the public that they actually won the election with a massive mandate to implement gun control. And then, of course, you've got people actually in Congress from the Democrat Communist Party saying in no uncertain terms that if the Supreme Court doesn't allow them to take everyone's guns, then they're going to expand the Supreme Court until it does. So we know what their goals are, and we know that this helps them to achieve the goals. But again, that doesn't explain why right now. Here is the explanation for why right now. This is from CBS News on June 2nd, so Thursday of last week. But this part of the story is not getting that much airtime, even though it is running concurrent to the central gun narrative. Upcoming Supreme Court ruling in major Second Amendment case looms over calls for new gun laws. As lawmakers at the state and federal level mount renewed efforts to enact stricter gun control laws in response to the latest mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, the Supreme Court is poised to issue its most significant Second Amendment ruling in more than a decade. The decision from the high court in a dispute over New York's stringent licensing regime for carrying concealed handguns outside the home could come as soon as next week. 
setting it against the backdrop of two mass shootings in a span of 10 days that shocked the nation. The first, a racist attack at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, that left 10 dead. The second, at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 students and two teachers were killed. Do you guys remember when that shooting in Colorado was a racist attack until they found out that the shooter wasn't white? Do you remember how the shooting at the Asian massage parlor was an anti-Asian hate crime until they found out that it wasn't just Asians who were shot and the guy didn't particularly (laughs) have any problem with Asians? But hey, they probably nailed Buffalo for sure. New York's rules present a resident seeking a license to carry a firearm outside the home to demonstrate a quote unquote proper cause to obtain one, which state courts have said is a quote special need for self-protection end quote. Challengers to the law argue the Second Amendment protects the right to carry firearms outside the home for self-defense, while supporters warn invalidating the restrictions could lead to more firearms on the streets. Following oral arguments in November in the case known as New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, a majority of the court appeared poised to invalidate the New York law, though the scope of a forthcoming decision on the right to carry outside the home remains unclear. Joseph Blocker, a law professor at Duke University and co-director of its Center for Firearms Law, said it's unlikely the Supreme Court finds all permanent requirements for public carry of handguns to be unconstitutional, which would be a sweeping decision mandating nationwide permitless carry. Instead, the high court could strike down the New York law on the grounds it is too strict or gives too much discretion to state licensing officials. That's the crux of all of this. And that is what they are absolutely scared of. Maybe they have some inside information on this. Maybe we won't actually get the hard and true decision, which is that the Constitution itself is your concealed carry permit. But they're going to use this narrative, this issue, this decision, no matter what it is, to continue enhancing their agenda. What does the next communist summer of love look like if the Supreme Court says citizens can conceal carry all across this nation? I would suggest that Black Lives Matter, Antifa and the rest of the communist movement's domestic terrorists might not be so thrilled to go out rioting if they know that the people they intend to commit violence upon are armed. And, you know, it's kind of funny how the communists think about society in general, that they believe if everyone was allowed to lawfully carry a weapon, that people would just start killing one another indiscriminately. Like, oh, you cut me off on the road. Bang, bang. Oh, you got the last new iPhone. Bang, bang. It's like they think anytime anyone gets upset, the thing they turn to is murder. Hey, commies, that's not how life works. The rest of everyone else doesn't hate themselves and thus hate other people. Unless you're already a criminal, you're not buying guns so that you can go out and murder people. At least not if you're buying them legally. And obviously, I'm not saying that never happens, but the vast, vast, overwhelming majority are not people intending to do that. They're people who want firearms for either hobbies or personal protection. And again, they only believe the worst about everybody because they're part of a hate movement. They believe it is true that lawful concealed carry everywhere would increase incidents of gun violence because they think the people who are going to take advantage of the ability to lawfully carry a weapon are horrible people who don't care about anyone else and would gladly kill your grandmother by not wearing a mask. So you'll certainly kill their grandmother. If you get a gun, it is completely irrational. It's only indiscriminate hate against people. They deem 
not like them. And this article is rather long, but it goes into a lot of extraneous stuff. I do want to read a couple more paragraphs, though. Either way, Blocker predicted that a decision from the Supreme Court to invalidate New York's rules could prompt states to shift their focus to new restrictions that prohibit firearms in sensitive spaces, such as in bars. The prospect of location-specific restrictions on public carry was an issue raised by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett in November as they questioned whether a city or state could ban guns on university campuses, in football stadiums, or in Times Square. Justices Clarence Thomas and Elena Kagan, meanwhile, questioned the potential for varying degrees of regulation based on the density of the population. It seems completely intuitive that there should be different gun regimes in New York than in Wyoming, or that there should be different gun regimes in New York City rather than in rural counties upstate, Kagan said. But it's a hard thing to make with our notion of constitutional rights generally. Yes, Justice Kagan, it is rather hard for someone who wants to ban guns to explain why the right to self-defense stops in certain places. Blocker, though, noted that throughout the nation's history, guns have been regulated more in urban areas than in rural places. Again, that doesn't say anything about whether or not the gun regulation regimes currently in place are actually constitutional. He's kind of just claiming, well, yeah, but everybody knows we need different gun laws in different places. Rules about permit requirements or open carry and the kinds of guns people possess might be tailored to the communities where they're being used, he said, adding that Thomas appeared open to the notion that the urban-rural divide could play a role in charting the boundaries of the Second Amendment going forward. The New York case is the most significant involving gun rights that the justices have heard since 2008, when the high court ruled that the Second Amendment protects the right to have a handgun in the home for self-defense. And in 2010, when the court said the right applies to the states. So this could get extremely interesting. Again, according to this article and other reporting, this decision may come out this week. And if the response to the draft decision on the abortion case serves as any preview to the response from this case, what we can see then with Hillary's tweet and the rest of the narrative is an attempt to gin up more anger and fear and division in this country in the lead up to the decision coming out. They are trying to put our society in a precarious position on all levels. They are trying to erode the rule of law and what holds a society together across every issue that affects Americans' lives. And the bigger the issue, the more division they can create. The more division they can create, the more division they can exploit. All the while, our society is being torn down to the position that they think will make the American citizenry give up their guns and beg for the global communist order. That is actually their plan. That is the great reset. That is what they intend to do. That is what they have always intended to do. It is in the agenda. It is written in their plans. You can read it. There's nothing conspiratorial about it. Now, I said that the ability for people of the nation to arm themselves and carry their weapons in public could present a major problem if the Democrats decide to have another summer of love and domestic terrorism because people will defend themselves. But I imagine that the communists also believe they can exploit that, too. They certainly don't care about all of the little domestic terrorists signed up with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. They don't care about the lives of those people. Not only do they not care about black lives generally, the communists, they don't care about the lives of other communists in Black Lives Matter. So they certainly don't care if they get shot protesting in favor of global communism and the agenda. If that happens, they will just recast Trump supporters and anyone who is not on board with the riots as a domestic terrorist, they will say this Supreme Court decision actually made the country extremely violent. 
And therefore, you have to vote for Democrat communists and you have to support them expanding the court to whatever level necessary they need to overcome decisions like this one. Now, finally, I want to talk about what will be one of the worst rated television series of all time. And of course, I'm talking about the January 6th committee's primetime schedule. This is from The Hill today. January 6th panel seeks to break through with primetime programming. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is preparing for a crucial week as it prepares. Oh, it prepares twice. Such good journalism. The first sentence of the article. Someone has to point out how bad these intellectuals are at actually writing. But let's read this magnificent sentence again. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is preparing for a crucial week as it prepares to finally share with the public the fruits of its months-long investigation into the riot in primetime on Thursday. So now is when we're going to get all the information. They're kind of admitting that nothing they've done in this committee for a year has made any difference except for the fact that fewer Americans now believe that Donald Trump was responsible for January 6th or that anything the media says about it is even true. The 8 p.m. hearing kicking off a series of meetings shows the committee is eager to reach a broad segment of Americans and relay the extent to which democracy itself was at stake that day. One year plus the five months since the actual event. So 17 months to the day today since the very violent insurrection. And we are supposed to believe that the January 6th committee and this story in general has not been able to reach a broad segment of the American public. And the proof of that for them is that the American public doesn't fully believe what they're saying. That's madness. They've been lying for 17 months. More people than ever are realizing that. It's not because you haven't reached us with your information. The goal here is to construct this narrative, said Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow in governance studies with Brookings. That is a global communist think tank. What they want to do is go through the countless depositions that they've taken and other evidence that they gathered and figure out a way to try and convey a story to the public. She said the goal here is to construct this narrative. Their narrative surrounding January 6th is a complete and utter failure. And so to respond to that, they're going to get the primetime airwaves on MSNBC and CNN. I don't even think the networks are covering it. And they're going to show everybody what they believe is shocking evidence that they just didn't bother showing anyone up till now. And they keep talking about how they'll have testimony from Ivanka Trump or Jared Kushner or Donald Trump Jr. And of course, they're going to edit the things that they've said to make it look like they are agreeing with the January 6th committee's point of view. But we know that's not going to happen. They have already given people reason to doubt them, to see that they are lying, to see that they are lying in favor of an agenda. And those same people have already realized that that agenda is not something they support. There's no coming back from this. The networks know no one's going to watch this. That's why they're not putting it on. Meanwhile, the cable networks are hyping it constantly. The challenge is making a captivating case for a wide audience, particularly those who feel they already know what happened that day or who are ready to move on from the attack. According to polling from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, the country is nearly evenly divided on how much it wants to reflect on that day. While 52% said it's important to learn more about what happened, 48% said it was time to move on. The divide is almost entirely partisan. I do think 
that the committee will have difficulties in communicating messages because the kind of segregated information environment in which a lot of the American public exists. Ryan Goodman, co-director of the Reese Center on Law and Security at New York University School of Law, told The Hill. That said, I do think the visual of a solemn public hearing and live testimony, plus in all likelihood video material, could focus attention in a way for the members of the American public that are otherwise not thinking about these issues. And what that means, of course, is that this whole event will be painted as a solemn and serious event. Nobody will watch it, but they will have little clips that they are going to play on television 24 hours a day, and they hope that those little clips will drive a narrative. Of course, those little clips will not drive a narrative. Those little clips will come out. We will show how ridiculous those little clips are, and then none of the country will believe it in a matter of hours or days. This is going to be an absolute faceplant for the communists. Putting the hearing in primetime shows the committee doesn't want to just reach those who already view the attack as a grievous assault on democracy. It wants to reach independents and even conservatives who have heard GOP leaders brand the panel as a partisan witch hunt, which it is. It's not even a legitimate panel. Jesse Rhodes, a political science professor who helped craft the UMass poll, said even with the sharp partisan divide, there are those who don't have strong feelings about the attack. We are finding in the poll that about 19% of people are purely independent. And then there's another 9% who lean Democratic and another 8% lean Republican. So there is a little bit of mushiness in the middle. And those people potentially can be shifted, he said, noting that just one third of Americans strongly identify as conservative. What? How many strongly identify as Democrat? This is lunacy. If there really is damning evidence of long term planning, involvement in collusion by the president or his top advisors, that does have the potential to move some people. Of course, there isn't damning evidence of that. They'll say there is. The media will repeat for a week that there is. But as they do that repeating, their repetition will get more and more difficult and more and more obviously dishonest. And of course, the article in The Hill has to repeat all of the rest of the slogans that intersect the January 6th very violent insurrection story. So the article just goes on forever. But it is rather amazing that they are admitting just right out. They are admitting that they are trying to shift the narrative because the country doesn't believe them. They're not trying to have an important hearing for the public good. They're not trying to have everything be fact based and objective. It is a television production. They're creating propaganda and they're not even ashamed to admit it. Newsmax posted on Instagram today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's partisan January 6th select committee has employed a former network executive in an attempt to turn Thursday's primetime hearing into must-see TV. The panel, comprised of Democrats and two anti-Trump Republicans, was relying on former ABC News president James Goldston to produce the primetime hearing, according to reports. Goldston, a British-American, who ran ABC's Good Morning America and Nightline, has been tasked with taking what the committee believes is explosive material and turning it into a captivating multimedia presentation for the primetime hearing, Axios reported. They have a mainstream television news producer orchestrating their congressional hearing for primetime viewers of CNN and MSNBC. And before I did this episode, I recorded Sean Morgan's Making Sense of the Madness show. That'll be out this evening. But I was discussing with Sean how thoroughly illegitimate this administration is and everything around it is as well. This is the sort of media coverage you would find in a banana republic. This is the sort of media you'd find in a dictatorship where the dictator came to power illegally, seized power through a coup. And this might even be worse 
because the person who's serving as fake president is himself a puppet and potential fall guy. He's not even the one who was the driving force of the coup. He's only in there because they believed that he would be a palatable figurehead that the American people might eventually accept as a legitimate winner of an election. But that's all completely backfired. If this was not the United States of America, the most powerful country in the history of the world, if this was some country in Latin America, Central America, a country in Africa, a country in Southeast Asia, and the environment of that country politically and socially was the same as the environment in the United States of America, we would not hesitate for a second to call that place a banana republic. And the truth is we wouldn't hesitate for a second either to understand that the ruler of that banana republic was put into power through a regime change operation led by the CIA at the behest of this same global communist order that has been doing it around the world for decades. Hey, everybody, they did it here, too. We didn't get a bad result of a close election where maybe there was some fraud. This has been a complete society wide soft coup. It has been building for decades. The evidence is absolutely everywhere. And we know exactly who's responsible. If this happened anywhere other than here, no one would doubt anything I just said for even a second. And it turns out that, yeah, it happened here too. Okay, guys, please go to Linktree, find username. I'm your moderator. All of the links to the podcast and everything that surrounds the podcast is right there. Please get used to listening on Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can also download the app Substack Reader, and it has the podcast player just right in there. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!